It's really great to be with you today, and I am very excited to be here, and uh, just really appreciate Pastor Dave and uh, the rest of the team. They always make me feel like I've been a part of it since the get-go, and um, that's, that's really awesome. I hate it that Mason's not here, um, but I so appreciate the invite. Uh, I've been able to hang out with him a f- couple times now, uh, we'll go and kind of get coffee and talk over at Foxtrotter or, or whatever, and he's just a really good guy. He has a really great heart, and he is a good preacher. Now, I've heard or read a handful of his sermons now, five or six, and everyone got better and better. And I even sent him an email to tell him, and of course, you know, he's pretty, he just, thanks, quit saying that, thanks, you know, he's kind of humble about it. But super preacher, um, and just a really great guy. And so, and he's an author, like, I'm sitting there, I'm reading his email response to me, and, and down here at the, you know, his little signature, it says Mason Powell, Powell, and it says pastor and author, and it's got a hyperlink, and I was like, what's the, because I didn't know anything about it. We've been talking twice, and never, never, you know, never said anything to me, so I clicked on it, took me to Amazon, and there was this pretty mug on Amazon, <laughs> right? Have you, he's got this trilogy, this dystopian trilogy, how many's read it? Has anybody here read it? A few of you read it? Okay, I haven't read it, but if it's anything like his preaching, it's got to be good, so go buy it. It's like $5 for a trilogy, you know, but, uh, and I love dystopian stuff. Anyway, really honored to be here with you today to wrap up the Jonah series you've been in for the last month, and I just, I really love this story. I admire the story of Jonah, because the author is a master storyteller who weaves together these events in Jonah's life with hyperbole and satire and irony, and the result is this really funny, compelling story that teaches us a lot about God so that we can learn something about ourselves. And and that's an important statement if you're a note taker this morning. I want you to get that because that's really the point of the story. The story of Jonah is designed to say something about God's character so that it can expose some things about our character. It wants us to learn something about God, in other words, so we can learn something about ourselves, so that we can become more like the God we serve. And that's really the goal, right? To be made in the image of his son, right? I mean, that's the big, that's the theological lingo. But we want to be more like Jesus. I want to love like Jesus. And so that's the point of this story. It wants us to learn something about God, so we can learn something about ourselves, so that we can become more like Jesus. So we're in Jonah chapter 4 today, and up to this point, you haven't been told why Jonah is acting the way he is acting. But chapter 4 is the big reveal, right? It's where we get to pull back the curtain and kind of see what's been going on inside of Jonah's heart this whole time. We finally get to learn why he's behaving the way he's been behaving. Because, I mean, up to this point, he's not behaved like a typical biblical character. You know, I mean, up to this point, um, he's been very, very different. In fact, I mean, throughout Scripture, people basically act one way with God. God tells them to do something, and they do it. All is well. End of story. It's so common throughout Scripture that scholars actually have a name for that sequence. It's called a commandment fulfillment sequence. God commands, people do it, 
and the story's over. That's how it is supposed to go. And there's just, I'll give you just a few examples of that, and they're all over Scripture, but just think of it. Genesis chapter 12, in the first few verses, it says, And the Lord said to Abram, Leave your country. So Abram left his country, as the Lord had said. It's pretty simple, right? Go on with the story. Genesis chapter 6, you get the same, same thing with Noah. And God said to Noah, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood and make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And so Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. That's how it goes. He commands, they obey. One more, 1 Kings chapter 17 with Elijah. The, The word of the Lord came to Elijah saying, arise and go to Zarephath. So he got up and he went to Zarephath. Right? (laughs) Pretty basic. Well, God gives a command. People obey and all is well. It happens again and again throughout Scripture, and we expect it to happen once more once we get to the book of Jonah, when God appears to Jonah and tells him to go to Nineveh. Only this time, it doesn't. Instead of telling us that Jonah got up and went to Nineveh as the Lord had commanded him, it tells us that Jonah got up and went to Tarshish as far as he could possibly go in the opposite direction of where God told him to go. And up until the fourth chapter of Jonah, we've not been told why Jonah does that. But it is his unexpected response that sets up the great and memorable story that follows that you've been learning about for the last three weeks where Jonah runs from God, so God pursues him and, you know, eats him with a giant fish, right? A fish that's so big that it can swallow a person. I guess you've heard the joke of the little girl in class. Right, where this little girl, she's talking to her teacher about whales. And the teacher says, it was, you know, it's physically impossible for a whale to swallow a human because even though they're very large mammals, they have a very small throat. And so the little girl says, well, we know it's happened once, right? You know, a whale it swallowed Jonah. And the teacher kind of laughs and snickers a little and says, well, that's what the story says, but it's... It's impossible. Couldn't have happened. And the little girl kind of reiterates it again. Well, the Bible says that a whale swallowed Jonah. So a whale swallowed Jonah. And the teacher reiterates, you know, a whale couldn't swallow a, a human, honey. It's not possible. So the little girl finally responds, well, you know what? When I get to heaven, I'll just ask Jonah if he got swallowed by a whale. The teacher says, well, what are you going to do if Jonah didn't go to heaven? And she said, well, then you can ask him. (laughs) Not my kid. My kid wouldn't respond that way. So Jonah's swallowed by this massive fish, and he doesn't quite have the skills or the physique of Jason Statham, so he cannot escape this megalodon right? It swallows him up and it takes him the other direction back to the Assyrian shores where he was supposed to go and what? 
vomits him out. It's hilarious. It's supposed to be funny. If you find yourself laughing when you read that, you're reading it right. I mean, if you go back to the second chapter when he's inside the belly of this well, he, he does say some really poetic, great things in his prayer. And he also says some stuff that's kind of hogwash, right? I mean, he starts out his prayer by saying, Oh, God, you hurled me into the sea. And if, immediately you're kind of like, What? You're the one that tried to get the sailors to throw you into the sea so you didn't have to go do what God told you to do. Right? He's in here and he's kind of he's just saying a little bit of hogwash and it's just funny because he, you know, he gets done and, and this fish takes him over to the shore and it's almost like even the fish can't stomach his nonsense. It just vomits him out, you know, kind of like gagging on him, you know, spits him out. On the, on the, it's supposed to be funny. Man, I love the Bible. So, by this point, though, Jonah's figured out he cannot escape God. And so, reluctantly, he goes down to Nineveh to deliver God's message. And it's eight words long. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's five words long. In, in our English translation, it's usually about eight words. He goes to Nineveh, and this is his message. He says, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Wow. Thank you for that encouraging word. Right? Okay, love. But to be fair, God has told him in the first chapter, in the first two verses, to go down to Nineveh and cry out against it. Because their total wickedness has rose up before me. So he's, he's told him to go with this very difficult Sermon. And so my question that I want to ponder this morning is, why doesn't Jonah want to go deliver that message? I mean, that sounds like a message you would want to deliver to your enemies. And that's precisely who Nineveh are. That's what they are to Jonah, the Assyrians. They are his mortal enemies. Jonah hates the Assyrians. And not that most of us would blame him. The Assyrians are merciless. They had, they'd never heard of the Geneva Conventions, okay, right? So they were ruthless. Their armies were infamous for their cruel and grisly treatment of their enemies. And when the Assyrians captured people in war, they would do horrible things. They'd gouge out their eyes and cut off their tongues and cut off their hands and fillet them alive. They were very violent people, and everybody knew it. God knew it. Their king knew it. Jonah knew it, and the Israelites had experienced it firsthand. So it's easy to see why Jonah didn't like the Assyrians, but why would Jonah not want to go and say to them, hey, the jig is up. The God of Israel has seen what you're doing, and he's mad. And he's coming to overthrow. Why wouldn't he want to say that? Why would he run from that mission? Well, we discover the answer to that question at the end of chapter 3 and at the beginning of chapter 4. As Jonah shows up in Nineveh reluctantly and declares his message, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And he hopes sincerely 
that that is true. But this is one of those points in the story where the author's mastery of irony is on full display. Because in Scripture, that word translated overthrown, 40 more days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, it's translated two ways in Scripture. It can mean two different things. First, it can mean overthrown in the sense of destruction, like destroying a city, how Jonah intends. Or secondly, it can mean overturned, like turn over or turn around, like repent. It's related to that word, to turn around. It can mean both those things. Jonah fully means it in the first sense and hopes that's what happens because these are his mortal enemies. He declares Nineveh will be overthrown and he hopes that it's true. But instead, the Ninevites hear his message and they say, wait a minute. Maybe we should stop all this violent stuff for a little while. And if we do, perhaps God will relent and turn from his anger so that we do not perish. That's chapter 3, verse 9. Perhaps we should stop all this. And maybe their God will relent so that we do not perish. And that's exactly what happens. And so... When we get to the beginning of chapter 4, Jonah is furious. He's mad at God. And this is what he says. He's talking with him. Oh Lord, this is verse 2. Is not this what I said would happen while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That phrase there, abounding in steadfast love, it's this Hebrew word, chesed. And it's really kind of hard to capture exactly what it means, but it means something like God is fully and totally committed to people. He's abounding in steadfast commitment, in steadfast love. And you're ready to relent from punishing. He says to God, this is exactly what I told you would happen. (laughs) And this is why I ran to Tarshish in the first place. You see... Here we discover for the first time that Jonah's already talked about this with God at the very beginning when God commissioned him. We just weren't privy to that conversation when the story starts. He says, this is what I told you from the beginning. It's why I ran to Tarshish. Way back when I was at home, when you first commissioned me to go to Nineveh, I told you this would happen because it's the type of God you are. I knew it would happen. I knew that if I went and warned them, if they gave even the slightest sign of remorse, if they even flinched in your direction, you'd be merciful. You'd be gracious because you're always ready to relent from punishing. You're always looking for any excuse to forgive, (laughs) to delay punishment, no matter how bad they are. That's a beautiful picture of the God we serve. 
And Jonah's mad at God for being patient and committed and merciful to his enemies. And as the story continues through chapter 4, God's going to go on and say to Jonah, do you really have any right to be angry at me for being this way? Because I've been all of those things with you. (laughs) No one in this story has received more grace than Jonah. With Jonah, God's been gracious, slow to anger, committed, patient, looking for any excuse not to punish him. Even when he flatly disobeys God and he runs in the other direction, God relentlessly pursues him. Jonah is so set on rebellion, so set on not going to Nineveh, he convinces the sailors to throw him into the sea. He'd rather die than go do He says it twice in the story. I'd rather die. Kill me, God. He's so set on rebellion, he would rather... He's set on self-destruction, but God is so slow to anger and compassion, so ready to relent from punishing, he sends a whale to swallow him up and pull him out of death, out of his own self-destruction. God has given grace upon grace to Jonah. He could have let him sunk to the bottom of the ocean and sent somebody else. He didn't need Jonah. He loved Jonah. So God is asking Jonah at the end of the story, do you really have any right to be mad at me for being the way I am? I'm just consistent. I love everybody with the same love I have for you. And that's how the story ends. With very little closure. Right? I mean, it's almost no ending. It's just an open ending with them out there on the side of this hill, outside of Nineveh, and God saying, do you have any right to be angry? And first Jonah's saying, yes! He just doubles down. Yes! I have a right to be mad. And then God teaches him this lesson. And then the story ends with God going to him again and saying, now, do you have any right to be mad? And Jonah does not respond. It's an open ending because, and this is what I want you to get this morning, we are the ones in the hot seat. We are the ones God is talking to. The story of Jonah goes out of its way to emphasize all of Jonah's character flaws so that we don't miss them because It wants us to look more closely at our own hearts. The story isn't primarily about Jonah or even Israel, even though those elements are there. The story is primarily about God. God is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in committed love. He is always ready to relent from punishing It wants to say that to you about God, and you get that in you. And then it intends to, what it intends to do is to provide us with this picture of God so that we can evaluate how that makes us feel. Jonah had this us versus them mentality. 
he wanted his enemies to get what they deserved, even if he didn't. And this story is asking us if we feel the same way sometimes. And if so, if we're willing to acknowledge it and repent, change. The story of Jonah, and I'm, give me a few more minutes. The story of Jonah poses a couple questions to us this morning. First, as God asks Jonah there at the end, it asks us, are you okay with the fact that God loves your enemies? Are you okay with the fact that God loves your enemies and wants to offer them the same grace and mercy and patience that he offers you? Over the years, I've heard some really great sermons on God's love and on God's grace. I've preached a few sermons on God's love and on his patience and his compassion. And people love those sermons. They eat them up, right? We love to hear a good sermon about God's goodness to us. But we're not near as stoked to hear sermons about how much God loves our enemies. But fundamentally, they're the same message. They're both about God's unfailing, unswerving, unconditional, boundless love. His love is consistent, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, love never fails. Nothing stops God's love. We love to hear that in 1 Corinthians 13. We love to hear that, you know, in the context of a wedding ceremony, but not so much when it's applied to our adversaries. God's love never fails. We live in a moment in history, folks, when you're either for us or you're against us. There is no middle ground. An us versus them mentality prevails in our society right now. The lines have been drawn in the sand, and you must pick a side. And if you're on the wrong side of the line, you're demonized and you're marginalized. And that's often just as true of the church as anywhere. But it must not be. The American church desperately needs to move beyond enemy making. And the story of Jonah challenges us to do that. Secondly, the story of Jonah asks us this Are you not only okay with the fact that God loves your enemies, but also that he might want to use you to bless them? Because that's Jonah's mission. Go and be a mouth pet, mouthpiece of blessing. Go and be a good witness. Let them hear the gospel. Let them see your light shine. Are you okay with the fact, one, that God loves your enemies, and two, that he might want to use you to get to them? Anybody here fans of the Big Bang Theory? <laughs> Yes. So there's this one episode where Sheldon is mad at his best friend, if you don't know the story, if you don't know the characters, Leonard. He's mad at Leonard, his best friend, because Leonard has accepted an invitation to a party that's being hosted by a person that Sheldon has declared to be his mortal enemy. 
You can almost hear him saying it, right? So, and when Sheldon tells him why he's so mad, somebody else in the room says, wait, you have a mortal enemy? And he just, as Sheldon can only do it, in this matter-of-fact voice says, oh, yes, I have 61 of them. And then he proceeds to plop down behind his computer and pull out this massive five-and-a-half-inch five floppy disk. <laughs> he's been making a list for so long, that's what he's got the list on. Since he was like eight, he's been making this list. So he pulls out this five-and-a-half-inch floppy disk and puts it into the computer and actually produces <laughs> this list with 61 names on it of people who he has declared to be his mortal enemy. Few of us, hopefully none of us, have an actual list of enemies in our computers. But that doesn't mean we don't have a file tucked away in our minds comprised of people that we've labeled enemy. A co-worker who manages to take credit for everything good that we do. The sibling who has a way of emphasizing every already embarrassing moment. My boys aren't here, but I, I put that in. That was tailored for them, right? <laughs> Those enemies may not have committed the atrocities on the level of the Assyrians, but that doesn't mean that we're any more eager to extend to them the love and mercy and compassion of Jesus. So how do we begin doing that? I might propose to you this morning that the way to start is to turn your enemy list into a prayer list. Because that's what Jesus instructs us to do in Luke chapter 6. I'm going to read a few of the verses. He says this, he says, To you who are listening, is that you this morning? To you who are listening, I say this, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Are you okay with the fact that he not only loves your enemies, but wants to use you to bless them? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Man, this is tough stuff. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Anybody can love somebody who loves them back. You might say we're most like God when we are loving our enemies. Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Ouch. And then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. Why? Because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. So be merciful just as your father is merciful. So he mentioned that we went off to Wheaton for a while for college. Any Wheaties here? I know I see some parents of a weedy that I went to school with, Tisha Cooper. So I was in Wheaton 
whenever Ed Stetzer, if you know who Ed Stetzer is, whenever he came and became the director of uh, the Billy Graham Center for Evangelism. And um, uh, Ed, he's a really, he's a machine. He's got like two PhDs. He writes like crazy. He's got a million books and writes for the exchange and Christianity Today and yada, 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 yada. And anyway, he was, I got to hear him tell this story about uh, when Wheaton had him go down to a conference in Florida. And because it was in Florida, his wife went with him, right? And uh, so they fly down and he said, we got out at the airport and we had scheduled an Uber on our app. And a Uber driver came and picked us up from the airport to take us to the conference center. And he said, when we slid into the back seat, he said, this driver, her, her name was Jane, Jane the Uber driver. He said, um, she had this tray that was like connected on the, on the back of her console. And he said, in it, there was a, a lot of little different items. You know, there was some loose change and maybe a couple dollars and some candy and some gum and some Kleenexes. And then this little inconspicuously placed pocket New Testament, all sitting back here on this tray. And, and he said, we got in and she introduced herself and she asked us our names and we told her and she's driving along and she continued to try to kind of engage in just light conversation, you know. And... Uh, he said, and I was trying to just kind of be nonchalant, you know. And, and then she said, so what do you do, Mr. Stetzer? And he, instead of saying, well, I'm the director of the Billy Graham Center for Evangelism or, or whatever, he says, I'm a, I'm a college professor. And she says, oh, okay. And he says, trying to kind of change the direction of the conversation, what do you do, Jane, when you're not driving the Uber? And she said, oh, I'm a, I'm a real estate agent. And so on the side, I drive this Uber to make a little extra cash, like a little side hustle. He said, and immediately, she just kind of changed gears again and said, so let me ask you, are you and your wife spiritual people? <laughs> and she kept just kind of easing this conversation, you know, towards spiritual things. He said, and my wife was kind of looking at me out of the corner of her eye, and I was looking at her. He said, and finally, when she said that, I said, listen, Jane, my name is Ed Stetzer. I'm actually the director of the Billy Graham Center for Evangelism at Wheaton, and I just want to tell you, you're doing a great job. But right? uh, Anyway, they get to the conference center, and just as they get there, he gets this call from Wheaton College saying, we need you to come back and catch a different flight because Billy Graham has just passed away, and we need you to go out to the East Coast and represent us at the funeral. And so Ed headed back, and he went out to the funeral. And as he was at the funeral for Billy Graham, Billy went to Wheaton. So he's there kind of representing Wheaton. And he's there, and he said, Lori, Lori Goldstein of the New York Times comes up to him, and she's kind of talking to him. And she asks him the question. She says, Mr. Stetzer, let me ask you, who is the next Billy Graham? And he said, without hesitation, Jane, the Uber driver. And Lori said, what do you mean? And so he told her this story about what had happened. And Lori's response was, well, it's a great story, but it'll never make the New York Times. And he said, and that's the point. There's probably not coming another grand scale speaker like Billy Graham where people are going to flood into tents. A return to God 
people flooding in to the God we know in Jesus Christ is going to be the result of everyday people, taxi drivers, teachers, lawyers, construction workers, who will cross over lines of division and open up conversations and create relationships so that they can share Jesus through word and deed, love and kindness. That's where revival is going to start. So I want to ask you this morning, is your life dictated by an us versus them mentality? Have you made yourself, have you made yourself unavailable physically, mentally, spiritually to people who are on other sides of the line than you? Or to say it another way, has perhaps your political posture put you in a place where it's impossible for you to be a witness to a Democrat or to a Republican? Has your stance on social media set you in a place where you can't be a light? You've planted your feet in some other thing and it's alienated you from being able to witness to your enemies. Have you made yourself unavailable? I want you to think about it for a minute. Unavailable to people on the other political aisle, unavailable to people at work, unavailable to people at Thanksgiving dinner. What about Muslims or atheists or in-laws or people of color or different ethnicities or different religions? Grand scale, little scale, whatever. Are you okay with the fact that God loves your enemies and are you willing to reach them? Or to be even more blunt, when was the last time you struck up a friendship of somebody that's different? How close are you to them now? I'm preaching to me this morning, folks. What are we doing to build bridges when burning them is so much easier? Are you seeking to be a blessing to your enemies, a funnel through which God can pour out his blessing upon them? We're going to sing a song take just a few minutes and I want to ask the elders if they'll make themselves available in the back some of you maybe it's something specific you want to pray about, they're there to pray with you maybe the rest of us, if I'm being honest I think we've all got something to pray about this morning because I'm including myself here and I'm going to pray about me too but if you want some guided prayer if you want some people to come around you and pray about an attitude or a situation or something, they're going to make themselves available to you right now as we sing this song. Fine.